0: Welcome to the Chris podcast for Wednesday, the 11th of September, 2019. We speak with Chris Rolls, Managing Director of Pilab, and drilling into what all
1: founders need to know.
0: Welcome to the Wholesale Investor and Chris podcast. Uh, this session, I think it's session five now, we've got Chris Rolls, who's the founder of Pilab Ventures, and we are obviously very happy to have him along. So please welcome Chris. Okay, Steve, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, Yeah, obviously excited to have you here. We were just gonna normally say, we're gonna do a a bit of a catch up, but obviously had the opportunity to to have this discussion. And for me, you've actually been really helpful for me in some of my thinking, and also you provided me insights that I don't think I've really had with uh, other investors that I've had conversations with. And what's also really nice about you is you've also got that, you come from the background of actually being a founder, building a business, selling it, and then moving into the, in, into the venture and into the investor, into the investor side. Yep. So to kick this off, love to hear your
1: story. Sure. Uh, so from, uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, yes. you mean? Yeah. Um, so I started uh, my first business when I was, well, actually had my very first business when I was in school. So I've kind of been one of those kids kind of. <laughs> what, what was paid, that first oh, business? It's, I, had a, I had a couple actually. So I did the paper run thing. Yep. Uh, I had a car washing run. Uh, at one stage I had a, a cake making so I used to make cakes and sell them to like up and down the street um oh, so my were, mine was pamphlets there you go <laughs> yeah. so um uh and then it got a little more sophisticated and that was at a high school I started our school canteen our school didn't have a canteen so I started it with uh with a friend of mine and that that was actually a, a proper business in a sense that you know we, we actually made some money out of it uh until the school opened their own canteen and promptly put us out of business so that was uh that was uh, not not a great event, but I've never um, heard that one before. Yeah, yeah, yeah before so canteen. Um, <laughs> but uh, like from from a proper perspective, I, my first real business really was a company called scody Performance Wear, which is a manufacturer of cycling and triathlon clothing. And I started that while I was at uni. I studied sports science at uni, and um, kind of go about halfway through the course and realised uh, I, I really enjoyed it. But there's not a lot of jobs for sports scientists out there, mm-hmm. uh, especially you know back in the in the 90s and. Um, uh, While well, I finished the course, and I, I actually took a lot of my electives in, in sort of uh, in business-related subjects, uh, sports marketing and entrepreneurship and things like that. But uh, I started Performance Wear, which uh, manufactured triathlon clothing initially. And the reason I started that was I was the secretary of uh, the Far North Coast Triathlon Club uh, in northern New South Wales. And uh, my job as the secretary was to organize the uniforms for that particular year. I got the quotes from the various manufacturers, and when I got them in, I realized that as a poor university student, uh, I wouldn't be able to afford a uniform. So I thought, hang on a moment, I can probably solve this problem because I had a friend that was making rash shirts uh, and selling them at markets and selling them to surf life saving companies. And I had a chat with him and said, hey, can we make this stuff? And he said, yeah, I think we could probably make this stuff. And we went to some of his sewing contractors uh, who also used to manufacture for companies like Billabong and Mossimo yeah. and Seafolly, so that, you know, good quality manufacturing and uh we basically um employed a pattern maker made the patterns to be honest we actually copied the patterns from from competitors clothing (laughs) inspired Um, by it inspired by um, and uh, and then we we basically made the clothing and it it was a a big success and then the grafton triathlon club wanted some and then the service paradise triathlon club wanted some and then we sort of expanded into surfwear and cycling and that's how scody was born and sort of 20 odd years later probably more than that now. Probably 25 years later mm. um, that business still operates it's probably close to the largest manufacturer of, of cycling and triathlon clothing in Australia now um, wow. so that was uh, that was my first business and uh, I, I actually sold that a few years into that business and the reason why is how, how many staff did you have at that stage? oh I think it? we were probably 20 ish yeah. uh, so it wasn't wasn't a huge business um, it was a fun business, yeah, um, and it didn't make a huge amount of money. I mean, the market in cycling and triathlon it was very small compared to, to now. I mean, obviously you probably you know you have to drive a car yeah. on a Sunday morning and realize how many people are out cycling on roads yeah. these days, and it was nothing like that back then. I mean, and the technology that goes along with it, yeah, absolutely. And uh, but it's it was a it was a great business. We made we, we manufactured clothing for um, uh, for you know world championships, Olympic mm. teams. So uh, the clothes have been worn Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, uh, world championships. Um, so, so very much um, uh, high quality, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, uh, elite sports. You know, and was it sold to a strategic buyer or? I sold my share to my business partner. Okay. Uh, I undersold my share to my business partner, so that the, the, the exit process was. I came in one day. And I said, oh, you know what? I'm a bit sick of this. I think we should sell the business um, over a coffee. He's like, yeah, all right, let's do that. So That's decided, a rough week if you've come in with that. We decided to sell it. And um, and uh, we had a bit of a conversation about, you know, what do you reckon we can get for it? And I came back in the next day and he said, oh, I actually think I should stay and, 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 and buy your share. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, should we work on the price we worked on yesterday? He's like, yeah, and done. Deal done. <laughs> so it was like a five-minute I mean, conversation. That seems like the most seamless business exit ever. Uh... It was seamless, but it, but it wasn't but it wasn't uh, as profitable as it could have been. But yeah. um, and we're still very, we're still very good mates. <laughs> um, but um, you know, he 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 bought my share off uh, off me, and he subsequently sold half of it about two years later for about fifteen times what I sold my share to him. Oh for. wow! For but um, you know, uh, exercise in learning. Um, so. That was my first business, and, and so after that, I then um, started, uh, I actually bought a franchise in a business coaching company, and I coached small businesses on how to improve their sales yeah. and marketing, and how to recruit more effectively, really just helping Joe Blog's average small business What owner. was the motivation behind that? Um, the motivation was that we actually had a business coach in our business, yeah. and I just kind of liked the idea of the variety um so when you're in clothing manufacturing it's kind of a lot of the same 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 yeah. type you know it's once you develop your range for the year it's all about manufacturing stocking retailers dealing with corporate orders etc cetera, et cetera. and it just seemed very repetitive and seeing what he did which was getting to play in all of these different businesses i thought oh that'd be kind of cool hmm. um and it was a franchise group it was actually a, a business called action business yeah. coaching and i bought a franchise in that uh, in the very early days of, of action business coaching and um did that for about 18 months learned a huge amount of information so it was literally working alongside the CEOs of 12 or 14 businesses that uh, I had signed up and and it was just a a massive learning event Uh, problem with it though is that when you sell your time it's not scalable scalable. Uh, so that was a a, a really important lesson um, from that so I sold that and then effectively invested in two of my clients businesses and went and ran one of those businesses and was a passive investor in the other business that I ran. So just out of curiosity, so when you, those
0: two businesses that you invested in, was that because you saw, what was it that you saw firstly in the way that they implemented the the lessons from you and also from the the, the owners themselves? What was it that? Sure, so
1: um, one of them was a company called uh, Mr. Globologist and basically it was (laughs) in the lighting industry, hence Globologist. And as a guy, what he used to do is he used to change light bulbs, which doesn't sound like a brilliant business idea, but he used to change light bulbs in retail outlets. So, if you go to a shopping centre, like a Westfield, for example, yeah. and you go into a, a, any store, like a country road store, most people don't look up at the ceiling to have a look at the lights, but the ceilings are very, very high. And when a light bulb blows, back then, the shop assistant would ring head office, who'd ring an electrician, who would come out with a ladder, charge $150 and change the light bulb. And what he worked out was that if he just had a, a big stock of the lighting, and the lighting is actually quite specialist in retail, mm. uh, and he was knowledgeable about it. He would just go from shop to shop to shop and change light bulbs for, six, for $60, which takes five minutes. Um, and he had this, so he would just cold call on those shops? Would, well, they got to know him after a while. So yeah, he yeah, basically he worked in three shopping centers. Yeah. And, and I'm sure a manager would have loved him. All his revenue? Well, of course. I mean, no lights yeah. out. Um, you know, and so that was his business model. The problem is he had trouble scaling it uh, because he was a great salesperson but not yeah. a great manager of people. And I said to him, hey, look, there's a massive opportunity here. So we franchised his business and uh, I had a, another guy come in as the CEO. So we appointed a CEO and, um, you know, we, we, we got that business up and up and running. I structured it poorly. Um, yeah. And what I mean by that is myself, another investor and the CEO took a 49% shareholding in it. Uh, and then about 18 months down the track, they actually, uh, the original founder uh, brought in a business consultant because um, um, it's a funny story. His, his wife, who was sort of the receptionist, it was kind of a two-man team, or sort of him and, and, his, and his wife, and she couldn't understand why she wasn't getting paid as much as, as she wanted to be the marketing manager, but she didn't have any sort of skills in that space, and it just got a bit messy, and, yeah. and she couldn't understand why she could, you know, they own 51%. Why can't she be the marketing manager? Why can't her husband be the CEO? And the reason why is they didn't have the skills to build the business, and in the sort of 12 months that we were in there, We built it to 20 vans on the road. Uh, 80% of the franchisees were profitable inside six months. You know, enormous success, mainly because of the business model. Um, But they came in one day and I wasn't there, but the CEO wasn't allowed in. The doors had been, locks had been changed on the doors. There was a security guard outside. It was this most bizarre thing. And it was like kind of a, a hostile takeover. And so, you know, it's sort of headed towards court and then they, we settled down to court and uh, the business kind of went along without it's us. It's crazy how many businesses was, you hear are
0: killed mm. by ego. And ego for like, fighting for what?
1: Yeah, what? absolutely. Well, and that, then about 12 months later, they went into receivership. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, so you it's actually, lost opportunity. Okay. Yeah. 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 But it sounds like you guys actually did okay from it. Oh, we got, like, like, I think I would argue, you know, of the businesses that I've run over the years, that was one of the best business models. I didn't yeah. come up with a business model. He came up with a business yeah. model. Um, but... You know, in a in franchising, where you've got a business model where you know eighty percent of the franchises are up and running and profitable inside six months—that's highly unusual. Yeah, um, and making good money. Um, you know, well, you to buy it out at receivership. Um, or you By that then, same? by then it was—you know—it uh, was, it was kind of the answer is no. Uh, it, it would have been messy, and and I'd already you know been working on the other business, which was a company called First Class Accounts which was another interesting story because that started... that brand I've heard of. Yeah, yeah, most people have heard of first-class accounts. And the reason behind that is that when the GST was introduced um, in the... ninety wasn't it? I was going to say late 90s, I think. um, Every business in Australia was given a voucher to... I think from memory it was like a $210 voucher and you could go and buy a copy of MYOB or QuickBooks Or, or you could spend it on anything that had to do with printing. Um, for a new price lists and things like that, mm. in order to help businesses adjust to the GST, yep. and so the bulk of people bought software like QuickBooks and MYOB uh, in order to basically digitise their accounts. The problem is that none of them knew how to use a computer, and this business I invested in was looked after small business accounts, so it was kind of like a, 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 a sort of like a high end bookkeeping or mm. a sort of a low end accounting firm. And his phone just rang off the hook. Um, so we applied the same franchise model to that. And 18 months later, we had 120 offices open. Um, and it was just this right place, right time, with a with a, a reasonable business model. Funnily enough, the business model wasn't as good as, say, the Mr. Globologist one, um, but I structured it better. We didn't have some of those ego issues. Um, yeah. And it, it became a, a huge success. So
0: Interesting.
1: Um, yeah. well, surely,
0: like going to, at that sort of scale, growing that fast in 18 months, surely there must have been... Like what sort of challenges did you find you sort of faced in growing at that pace? Oh, all sorts of challenges. Um, so I, even the onboarding of franchisees at that stage. Yeah, yeah. so insane. we did them in
1: groups. So we yeah, would run, we would do them in groups of 10 at a time and we'd run them through our, we'd, we'd, we'd bring them, they basically living in a hotel. We'd yeah. run training for a period of two weeks. Um you know, they would get out on the road. We'd find them their first, you know, customers for them. That was, a, you know, a big thing. Uh, was finding the first customer. Finding customers then was really easy because it was just, a, you know, truckload yeah. of them. Um, but we did make some mistakes. Made a lot of mistakes. You know, one of the classic franchising mistakes is, you know, early on when you're when you're bootstrapping and you're struggling for cash. You know, if, if someone can breathe, you'll pretty much put them on. <laughs> 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 which which people do don't realize that, but that's so that, true. That, that is exactly what yeah. happens in the franchising industry. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes you a while to realize that the short-term gain is not worth the long-term yeah. pain. And so, you know, 18 months into that, we actually had to clear a whole bunch of them out because they yeah. just weren't capable of, of, of running the business effectively. Um, but, you know, they're, they're things you learn and we dealt with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had that business for probably three and a half, four years. Yep. Yeah. While I had that, you move fast. I well, I did for for the first few. While I had that, I invested in a real estate agency, just as a passive investment. Some friends were opening a real estate agency, I used to help them out on the weekends. And um, and what sort of stuff were
0: you helping them on the weekends? Oh,
1: I would. uh, Oh, just stuff uh go along to open homes i would uh help them set up the database like a crm structure yeah. which back then most real estate agencies didn't have crm systems so, so were you doing this did.
0: before you'd invested or after
1: you'd invested oh no um you know i invested and then, and then did. Just, yeah okay. helped them out on the yeah. weekends and, and that sort of thing and i thought wow this whole real estate thing mm. is quite fun um and so that's that was really my catalyst to sell first class accounts so i sold first class accounts again to my partners uh, another very quick deal once again undersold it so I didn't really learn from the first time but uh, I got a better outcome um, but definitely undersold. I don't think anyone's one. feeling
0: sorry for you at this point with your underselling. So um,
1: you know and, and then got into the, the real estate business full time and, and yeah. um, you know I, I sort of was helping them out it, it was clear that, that, that I was probably the best choice to be the CEO of that and, and uh, we did we built a very successful you know quite a large sales team uh, in, in how, real estate. How, how many did you have? Uh, we got up to sort of 16, 17 salespeople. Yeah, it was wow. quite large for, a, for a, you know, yeah. a, a franchise. We were part of a franchise group, part of the Harcourts group. Yeah. Uh, we were the fifth largest Harcourts office in Australia. We,
0: at, at that time, they, they were sort of all commission only, wouldn't they? Would they have been all uh, commission yeah, only? Yeah,
1: it, it was just transitioning to this scenario where you had to actually pay a, a base salary okay. to them. And what so. year is this? Two thousand and one is when I made the investment. Okay. so this is when the
0: market was sort of having a, a sort of boom period. That's like yeah, market was good 2001. in Brisbane. Yep.
1: Um, so this was in Brisbane. Um, market was market was going along yep. quite nicely. Harcourts was a new brand in mm. Australia at the time, um, and uh, you know, but we only ran it as a traditional agency for probably three years, yep. and that's when we got into property management. I noticed, yeah, you know, the, the problem with with real estate sales is it's a hard business to scale. So you've yes. got a lot of high-profile, personality-driven people that are often very difficult to manage, a lot of egos involved. Yes. Um, and it's it, it's a notoriously difficult business to scale. It's also very cyclical as well. Um, so, I mean, take, for example, yeah. the Sydney and Melbourne markets over the last, you know, 18 months. Uh, they've been in all sorts of turmoil. Agencies have been bleeding, you know, going broke left, right and centre.
0: And that property management business sort of becomes the core
1: yeah, absolutely, it becomes the core and I looked at it and I thought, wow, no one in the industry is doing this particularly well, yeah. what if we just get rid of sales altogether and specialise on just doing property management really well? Uh, and that's what we did and we really focused on operational efficiencies, we uh, really focused on developing software for the real estate industry and uh, eight, eight, nine years later, so actually probably more than eight, nine years later, actually three in sales and yeah, about eight or nine years later. Um, I sold that business and we had about two and a half billion dollars worth of property under management so the largest managers of property in so, Queensland
0: so take a step back so with the building of the software were you building that in Australia or did you build that offshore
1: uh, a bit of both uh, yeah. so some of it we so one of the things we built was uh, an electronic key tracking system so yeah. The interesting thing about property management is it's an enormously complex process, which is why service levels to to landlords are often very poor. Mm -hmm. Um, There are probably 90 individual processes that take place inside a real estate agency in any given day, and each one of those processes could have 8 to 10 steps in it. Um, And so we really broke down all of these processes to the, the nth degree, and we looked at where the inefficiencies were. So, for example, one of the inefficiencies is Um, a tradesperson comes in to pick up a key so they can go to a house to do a plumbing job yes Um, now they go and do the plumbing job and while that person is out doing the plumbing job uh, an inspection um, or while that plumber has the key but might not necessarily be at the house an inspection has been booked and then the property manager goes to get the key and there's no key so therefore they can't do the inspection so therefore they have to ring the tenant cancel the inspection rebook another one and, or, you know, and, and all of the complexity that goes with that. All the, all the plumber loses the key and doesn't bring yeah. it back. And so how do you track keys? Mm. Um, and the way the real estate industry used to do that is they had a book, and when someone took a key off a hook, they would write down the address, write down the date they took it out, and the key number. And, of course, it just became this big mess, and no one ever knew where keys were. We spent a whole bunch of money on cutting keys, but that's how the entire real estate industry but worked.
0: At that time, right,
1: you were seeing, like, I think
0: you – yeah, as I watched Chris's presentation yesterday at the, at a prop tech event. He was talking about the three different waves of uh, a, a property tech or a prop tech. And the first wave is obviously the, the platforms is like domain and realestate.com.au and so forth. Were they part of your, like you seeing the rise of those platforms, is that part of your thinking that, you know, there's an opportunity for technology in real estate as a starting point?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we were. I, I was coming into the real estate industry with zero experience in real estate. Yeah. Um, and so all I was doing was applying things that I had learned from running other yeah, businesses, yeah. um, whereas most people running real estate agencies, and most people today running real estate agencies, um, became an owner of a real estate agency because they started as, you know, the, the kid that hammers in mm. signs and then became a receptionist and then became a sales assistant and then became a salesperson. They're good at sales, so they ended up owning the real estate agency. And there's very little... Um, you know business acumen in the real estate industry in terms of running real estate agencies and and what you see is you see a handful of really really well-run agencies and the rest of it's very very average um and and while it's certainly improved now but you go back sort of 15 yeah. years it wasn't it wasn't hard if you knew how to run a business to to perform well and as far
0: as now so obviously you're that so that was that business and then you obviously built that business and where where just sort of I think you said about was it two billion of
1: yeah two and a half billion dollars of the yeah. property under management yeah. uh so we were the, the largest property managers in queensland um and, and really one of the things i looked at with that business was it had a Sorry, you know, why just queensland why not the rest of um yeah i i often get asked that question the, the reason why is that um it doesn't make sense to go to other markets when you've only got a small share you know percentage of of, of the market in the market that you're in mm. um, because all that does is add complexity. New offices, new people, new managers. Yeah. You know, new legislation. You go to Sydney, Melbourne. It's different legislation because it's state-based legislation. It just adds okay. complexity. Yeah. So it's all about just focus on doing yeah. one thing, do it really well, yeah. stick to it, stick to a market. We had multiple offices. I think we had about six offices open. Uh, and we had a team in the Philippines as well. We had a team, sort of 25, 30 staff in the Philippines. And with that business, did you raise capital for the growth of that business or was it all sort of funded by you and the... We raised a little bit of capital. Um, in the early days or...? No, later on when yeah. we, you know, there were certain periods in the market. Um, so, so when you are managing property, a rent roll is a very liquid asset. You can mm-hmm. buy and sell the contracts in, in a rent roll quite easily. Uh, and one of the things we noticed is that the, as the sales market is cyclical, And the sales, in a downturn in the sales market, take for example, example, the global financial crisis, Mm -hmm. all the agencies who generate the bulk of their revenue through sales start going broke. Mm -hmm. And all of these rent rolls come up for sale and no one's got any money to buy them, except someone who doesn't rely on sales income, which was us. I actually actually remember coming across as
0: like one of my first things I come across in the area of capital raising was someone was raising money for a fund to buy rent rolls. And I thought that was a... Interesting approach for that similar reason, and it was like just straight up. Actually, no, it was straight before, just before the GFC.
1: Anyway. Yeah. So it would have been the peak of the market then. Yeah. Um, so very expensive, um, and there's been a few rent roll roll ups that mm. have not succeeded because the purchase price on them they're, they're very expensive to buy. Yeah. So we typically waited for the market decline. It's very much a supply and you know demand yeah. driven, and we were picking them up during the GFC at half the price that they were you know twelve months earlier. Um, but the bulk of what we built, we we literally signed up one at a time. Um, so, uh, you know, a very, very strong marketing engine. Um, and you sold, so you sold that, and did you sell it to a financial buyer or a strategic buyer? I actually sold that uh, to a guy called Paul Little, who um, is a, sort of a wealthy Melbourne businessman who ran Toll Holdings. So, he's yeah. uh, you know, built Toll Holdings. Um, and he was a significant investor in Pexar, actually, that mm-hmm. um, has just gone through that process. So, yeah. uh, I sold that to Paul. Paul had um, the largest property management business in Melbourne, a very large one in Sydney. Uh, so, your client was, became the buyer? um no he no he no he wasn't uh he we, we had no particular relationship oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there yeah so um but they were they, they were right, melbourne yeah, base. yeah, yeah. melbourne based and yeah. city base and then uh they bought us you know for our they had a small business in, in brisbane but, yeah. but they wanted to be, be big could get some economies of scale so they bought us so
0: interesting
1: and, um, and that was the exit yeah brilliant and
0: so and out of curiosity how long did that process take from start to finish when the first discussion happened so the actual transaction being done, money in the bank account, what was, was, it was, what was that time frame? It was pretty
1: quick. Um, and the reason it was pretty quick was that we weren't really thinking of selling, yeah. except that we had a couple of unsolicited offers. Um, so this is around 2015. Yeah, um, 2000, Actually, it was the end of 2015. And we had a couple of unsolicited offers. So, you know, the real estate market in the city of Melbourne was booming. Everyone's mm-hmm. cashed up. A, a couple of the big groups wanted to, to get a foothold in the Brisbane market. We had a couple of unsolicited offers. We thought, you know, with such a big rent roll, um, it's much less, it's much actually much harder to sell than a small one. Because if you've got a small rent roll, then the Ray White or the LJ Hooker down the mm-hmm. road can buy. Oh, if they're yeah. a big one, they can't. Um, so we, we sort of thought, okay, let's actually put it on the market and see if there's a buyer there. And, um, we did that and we, we kind of knew who was capable of buying it and yep. we reached out to those, those people. And, and one okay. Of those so people
0: that's real so it's going to step back again. So you're obviously ready to sell. What did you do to, pre- in preparation before that sale to get the business ready?
1: I think, uh, well, I guess, I guess we didn't specifically prepare for the sale, but we always ran a very, very organized structured business. Okay. So, for example, uh, I'm always a big believer of, um, you know, sharing wealth with other, you know, key employees mm-hmm. in the business that have been long-term and, and add significant value. Um, and and my, my rationale for that is, you know, one of the big, you know, uh, things that, that reduces performance in a business is turnover of key people. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can lock those people in, uh, and because we had multiple shareholders, we didn't do you know some of the things that you see in a lot of small businesses and medium-sized businesses where their people are running, you know the kids' school fees through it, or you know the car and you know or whatever it happens. So we were we were really running a very very tidy operation with um, you know very transparent accounting systems and all that sort of stuff, reports to shareholders, and all of that sets you up very well when you go through the exit process. And yep. you can show, uh, you know, a, a long history of. Here's how we prepared the accounts. We've done it the same way for the last seven or eight years. You can see a very linear line of growth, good quality profit coming through, you know, which you can back up with, you know, the financials, you know, the bank statements, my that sort of stuff to show you're not just making this sort of stuff up. Yeah. All of that, you know, helps significantly. Same from a governance and compliance perspective. There's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy and licensing requirements in the real estate industry. And we just we just had all our all of our things in order. So, it, it, and it wasn't specifically because we're going through a sale, that's that's just how I run businesses. And as a
0: funny thing, it was two weeks ago we did a podcast with Sam Riley, who's the, obviously the founder of Ansarata. And I remember we were chatting, I think you used Ansarata. We did use Ansarata, that's yeah. exactly right. Uh, so i would never heard of
1: Ansarata before
0: that. Yeah. We had an advisory
1: firm helping us and they, they put us on Ansarata, yeah.
0: Interesting. And f- okay, so you, you sold that and then I suppose you were going, okay, what's my next steps?
1: And then I actually finished. knew what my next steps were going to be, because oh, really? uh, okay. I actually, at that stage that we went through the sale, I wasn't running the business, uh, yeah. so I stepped out as the CEO probably 18 months, two years earlier, okay. um, and the reason behind that is I'd started sort of and, and, and exited four businesses, um, I, I decided I wanted to start investing um, in businesses, uh, in private equity and venture capital, yeah. and so... An active investor from the sound of it as yes, well. Yes, yeah, 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 an active investor. Uh, and keep in mind, some of these investments, some of these businesses had been investments for me, uh, yeah. but I decided yes. that's what I want to do. I want to make a career as a, as an investor. Yeah. Um, so what I um, what I did is I, I said to uh, a guy that I knew who was running a, a private equity firm, I said, look, um, I don't know anything about funds management, so you wouldn't normally employ someone like me, but I do know how to run businesses and you've got a couple of kind of sick looking businesses. How about we do a deal? I'll come and work at a re- significantly reduced rate. I'll fix up some of the messy businesses at the same time. You teach me about funds management, um, and that's exactly what happened. So, um,
0: we, interesting way of doing it. It's like a good, uh, a good way, I suppose, to to get your foot in the door. To understand yeah, it.
1: yeah, and it's and it's sort of, I sort of have this view of. If, if you're if you're going to make a career in an industry, one of the things you need to do is, is spend a lot of time learning about that industry. And yeah. so it's you know, and the faster you learn, the faster you can be successful in a particular industry. Yeah, you know. So if you take when I was in the property management industry, I went to every conference, I spoke to every major property manager in the country, I learned from businesses overseas, I. You know, did a lot of external education um, and and I've done exactly the same thing in funds management. Um, So I started with a period of 18 months of literally work experience in a fund manager because I knew nothing. Um, and literally, it sounds like you're putting up, you're literally walking into fires. from the Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, funnily enough. Oh, you weren't taking the easy part of say, show me your best performing businesses. And no, not at, not at all. Not at all. And I knew how to fix businesses. The bit that yeah. I wasn't so sure on was things like the raising capital, the yeah. financial services, license requirements. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, the administration, the reporting to investors. Um and so that's the, that's the stuff I need to learn about. And, and funnily enough, when I got in there, this particular firm had a big exit and a lot of the, uh, the senior executives got you know some, some significant payouts from bonuses and a bunch of them left. And so within about a week and a half of me being there, most of the senior executive team had left uh, with the exception of the CEO. And so I was, thought I was going to go in to sort of fix up you know, some of their portfolio companies. And I ended up being the person fixing up and implementing systems <laughs> and processes. I hired the CFO. Uh, and It was a public-listed company, so it was structured like a private equity firm. Yeah. It was actually a, a listed diversified uh, um, investment company. And, um, and so that was kind of like a baptism of fire, uh, which was perfect for me because yeah. that's exactly what I wanted um, was to, to really learn. So I got that back up and... and so it was 18 months you were doing that? About 18 months. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and about that 18-month mark is when we went through the sale of Rental Express. Yeah. Um, and, that's, uh, and then, when I went through the sale of Brilliant Express, I thought, okay, I think I know enough now about funds management to go yeah. and start my own fund. And that's how I got uh, into Pilot Venture funds. Brilliant. Now,
0: one, one of the best conversations I had with you, and you, you did, I, I said I've I talked about this beforehand. I remember we were going to, what was that festival in Brisbane? There was a big event. It was like May last year. Uh, Myriad? Myriad. Yes. So it was Myriad Festival. Steve Baxter put on a part, put on a some sort of party, and uh, we were all sort of having beers, and this was the first time I really had the chance to you know, have a conversation with you. And you said something really interesting, and it sort of resonated with me, and I was want sort to of chat about I said, when you're a founder and you're building a business, you always feel like you're sort of faking it whilst you're building until you get that to the point of exit. you Sort of, sort of you're navigating your way through and then you had that you mentioned that for you as a VC you also had that same position when you launch a VC fund you figured out that everyone else was just like you basically navigating your way through and figuring out what works and what doesn't work to explain that process because I know when people come and see you like from the company point of view coming to chat about investment you're the you know you're yeah, so at, at the top of the hierarchy, or your sort of, they will look up to you in, in that journey. But just explain your journey into that
1: that that transition. Yeah, sure. So I think, uh, and that's exactly right. As an investor, so as as someone who is running a venture capital fund, um, there is this assumption that you know everything. Mm. And of course, the reality is, is that nobody knows everything. Uh, and I'm I I'm far from the sort of person who knows everything. And uh, although I do spend a lot of time trying to work out as much stuff as possible, but I think the reality is, whenever you're, you're running any business, you're you're making stuff up as you go. Um, you know, most most founders that are running a business at any given point in time are running the biggest business they've ever run. Yeah. Um, they, they've never run a bigger business than where they're at. So they don't have experience. You know, if you've got 100 employees and 20 million dollars in revenue, um, you don't have. You typically don't have the experience of having. You know, had. 500 employees and a billion dollars in revenue, which is where they'd be aiming towards, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, one of the things I've, uh, you, as as I explained in that story, if you look at all of these businesses, um, you know, three of them have become amongst the largest of their type in Australia, being SCODI, First Class Accounts, and Rental Express. Yet I've had no experience in any of those industries, and and I had no experience in in fund management prior to getting into that either. But if you can really focus on just learning everything and speaking to everybody that's had some sort of experience mm. when maybe you haven't, you you quickly scale up your level of experience do you much care faster than most
0: people. So do you care how successful or do you, do you speak to them whether they've been successful
1: or failed? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in fact, people people that have failed are often less inclined to talk to you, but you often learn more from them um, because you know you learn from their mistakes. I remember yeah. reading uh, a quote by uh, Warren Buffett who said that um, he said something to the effect of um, you know that the CEO who only learns by experience has a long hard road ahead of them um, and talks about how you're much better off learning not just from your own experience but from everybody else's experiences mm-hmm. as well because then you just shortcut the amount of time it takes to, to to work out how to do things and that's that's literally what we've done in the funds management space and you kind of yeah, you know, I think a lot of founders feel this: is that you feel a, a little bit lonely, yes. and b, kind of like you don't really know exactly what you're doing. And of course, most people don't don't share that they don't know. You know that. that. Obviously, if you're you're having a, a meeting with a client about you know how you're going to construct a, a 30-story building for them, and you've only ever done a 20-story one before, it's certainly not something you highlight. <laughs> you kind of go in that meeting saying, yeah, no, we 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 build buildings all the time. Um, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, well, we've never done a 30-story one, but here goes type thing. And that's yeah. the same for everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's just funny that most people don't admit that. Um, it's a dance, right? And uh, it's a, I'm trying to explain it. I
0: had a te- conversation with my team. The, really hard, the hard thing about being a founder, whether you know, you're, you're a founder of your fund, you literally spend 90% of your life thinking about things which don't exist. Which yeah. you're working on. Like you spend a lot of time like I say when you're sort of thinking about obviously a lot of time you spend a lot of time dealing with internal things that you have to deal with, but when it comes to where you're going in, in a direction, like you're sort of creating things which you know that's where you're spending
1: your headspace. it's Absolutely. very difficult. Absolutely. And I think over time one of the things you learn is is you learn the basics of running a business. And the right. basics are if you can if you can recruit well. You can you can get good people on board. You can manage them, keep them happy, keep them productive. Then really, your key role is is about strategy. Which direction you, you, do we you,
0: take these people in? I was gonna say you make that sound like it's easy, but it's obviously not. Yeah, it's it's
1: it's not complicated, but it's also not easy. Yeah. Is, is the way I is the way I put it. Um, so what was the, what what would you say would be your strength in the recruitment process? Um, I would say that my strengths are that, A, I've recruited more people than, than most people will do in a lifetime, yeah. and I'm probably only halfway through my career, and B, I've probably read more research about recruiting than most people have read full stop. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, so I mean, so the classic... What, what, what sort of things would you oh, do? Oh, the like? classic recruiting process. Um, what do people do? They, they, they place an on 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 Seek, they get some applicants in, they do a one-hour interview with that person, ask them some surface-level questions. Um, they let recruitment agencies um, do do reference checks, um, all of those fundamental areas in recruitment. I mean when you think about it if you're using a recruitment agency and a recruitment puts, agency puts someone forward, you're going to pay them if you give them the job. So if you get them to check the references, well if they get a, a reference that's a little bit dodgy well, what are they going to do? They're going to go, oh that was probably you know not representative and so I'll just leave that information out because they are incentivized to get this person a job because that's when they get paid. So they, they're, they're Getting, um, you know, recruitment agencies to do reference checking for you is is a complete conflict of interest. And so that's something, you know, I uh, never do. Um, The other thing, you know, a a really basic thing is when you're having an interview with someone, um, when when you're talking about the roles that they've had, um, most people will give you two or three references on a resume. Now, you know those references are going to be reasonably good. Um, They're not always, so they're still worth ringing. But the key is to find out who they reported to in each of their previous positions, and say, "Hey, look, um, Steve, uh, I know you, you 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 used to work at IBM. Uh, who did you report to there? Okay, great. And what would that person say about you? Okay, great. Do you mind if I give them a call and ask and have a chat to them?" So
0: whoever someone lists, you pretty much ignore and just find out who they are. Oh, to I to. still read those people.
1: Yeah. But 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 I also I also specifically ask uh, during life. the interview, yeah. and I speak to six or seven people because of, an A grade. Uh, team member will have zero issues about you speaking to people they've worked with previously okay. and even if they have even if they uh had you know worked with people that they've had um maybe personality clashes with they'll outline that they'll be very clear about that well you know feel free to ring you know bob smith he was my boss at such and such um I don't think we saw eye to eye on a couple of things, and here's why. But feel free to give him a call, yeah. um, you know, and get his side of the story. Because A-grade, A-grade, you know, players, um, you know, are, are not concerned about what other people are going to say about them because they know. That they're, that they're good team members. Um, and if there was a, like for anyone that's
0: listening to this, if there was certain books that you, is there certain books or certain things or videos that you yeah, recommend Yeah, sure. Um, so
1: on, on recruitment, I've i got two go-to favourites. Well, yeah. One is called Hire With Your Head. Um, yeah. Another one is called uh, Top Grading. I can't remember who Hire With Your Head is written by, but if you Google it, you'll be able to find out. Top Grading is by, uh, written by a guy called Jeff Smart. Okay. Um, so two, I think probably the two best books on how to recruit uh, a players in, in, in business and such an absolutely crucial thing. Getting did, the did, right you, people did you use in. any sort of profiling tools or any... Um, the books talk a little bit about profiling tools and, and I, I, I've done a lot on, on profiling. Um, I find profiling more useful... When it comes to how you interact with people and how you work with people, yep. um, because you can get A players that you know if you're say doing a DISC profile and you've got uh, if you're familiar with DISC, where yep. you've got sort of dominant, influence, stable, compliant type personalities, uh, you can get A players that fit into any of those personal hmm. profiles. So I don't think there's this scenario of saying they're X, Y, Z personality, therefore they're not going to be a good team member. Um, it's more about okay, how do you, so the personality profiling I use more around okay, how do we interact together? How do we make decisions together. If we've all got the same personality profiles, say an executive team, water out blind spots. Yeah. Um, they're the sort of things that I find that are useful when it comes to personality profiling, more so than the actual recruitment process. Interesting. I reckon we could actually do a complete podcast on that on actual human side. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, look as far as you obviously get the opportunity to work. How many investee companies do you have now?
1: Uh, we've fund? got uh, sort of six, and a seventh that's just technically not in the fund. It's just outside the fund. Okay. Yeah. And
0: what have you observed with the now sitting on the? You know, obviously, you've been on the investor hat for quite some time, but now sort of now that they're in your fund, what would you say for any founders listening to this, or any investors that sort of uh, are fairly active with their founders? What are, what are the things that you've seen that are, are key success elements with founders
1: in the high-growth businesses? Um, so I think, I think there's probably a few things that, that when I look across businesses, not just the seven that we've got interest in at the moment, but I look across other businesses I've been invested in over the years, I think there's a couple of key things. I think you know, probably the most important one is, is the founder slash CEO coachable? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are they are they open to to thinking that may be different to to, to their own? Um, and I think that would have to be the number one thing that determines the long-term success rate of a founder in a particular you know in a particular business. Yeah. Um, because it, it comes back to what we've just been talking about. Nobody knows everything, but if somebody thinks they know everything. Then they're not open to learning new things and, and being open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. And so therefore, they're less likely to, to, to learn by other people's experience. They'll only learn by their own experience. And as a result, they will, they will grow to a certain level and kind of cap out and, and really struggle to take yeah. a business beyond that point. Now, you can only find that out after you've invested into them, yes, right? So amazing. what do you look at before you've invested? It, it, look, it's a, an excellent question. And... You know, when you're investing, there's, there's so many things you take into account. So first of all, so like us, we're a fund manager, we've got a particular mandate. So, you know, a business has to fit into certain yeah. industries, has to be a certain size, we have to be able to deploy a certain amount of capital. So it's got to tick all of those boxes first. Then it's got to have a business that um, has the right growth metrics, um, has a, a business model that is financially sustainable. So it's got to tick all those boxes. Then we've got to be able to do a deal that we think is at a, a, a reasonable valuation, where that is a, a fair and reasonable valuation with the right terms. So you've got to tick all those boxes, and then you've got to tick the team box. Um, so if it kind of doesn't get through all those ones, you then you know we don't go through all the detail around the team until we sort of get to that, because that's the really time-consuming bit, and um, and and you know you then kind of go through. Those. So you know, so how often do you get the the perfect scenario of all of those things mm. being ticked? Pretty rare where you get them all perfect. So you must wait. You must wait it in your head, mentally um, in some way. Yeah, well, we do, but we, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, we, we look at a lot of businesses. That's what we yeah, do. Yeah, true. Um, I remember you showed us, like, uh, yesterday, it was, like, at, 430. 432 businesses. we looked at in the last two and a half years yeah. uh, to make, in that fund, six investments. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you go through a lot of businesses. That's so such that's, an interesting stat. That's so, mine was on the other side, right? So, when
0: I am talking about founders, I am talking about how many investors they need to speak to before they get one. Yep. And people are surprised when I use the metrics that they need to have at least... Ten to forty investors in their deal room before they get one. Yes. All right. So you think about your metrics as far as you know. It's it, yeah.
1: You, you're meeting what is it? One in eighty. Yeah. Yeah. Circa uh, every yeah. 80th business we invest in. Um, yeah. So you know, and, and in fairness, a lot of those businesses are too small. So So probably you know. But if you but start still, at, you're looking at it. Right? We look at, <laughs> at everything. In, yeah. in, you know that that is because we invest in, in a niche, which is is technology that sits in and around the real yeah. estate industry with this particular fund, and so. Uh, because of that there's only so many businesses in that space so we look at them all um, and in your investment style are you typically leading the investment or are you following the investment it, it depends uh, we've probably led on probably half of those investments yeah um, on the other half we've, we've not led and when you've led
0: investments do you have other groups that typically will follow you in
1: um, sometimes uh, so some of our investments were the only investor some of them yeah. were part of a, a group of investors uh, one of our investments uh, we've we got the Queensland government that have co-invested with us. Okay. Um, it sort of depends on the scenario. I mean, we've been invited into investments, so we we work quite closely with some of the banks' venture funds because we're obviously in property. Yeah, if they're investing in things that have you know a relationship that are relevant for the bank, it often has a relevance to the property industry, uh, and very often in early stage investing it's about getting the right people around the business in order to support it that, that, mm. that actually creates some of the success. Um, so so when you say right people, what are you looking at? The right
0: investors. Because okay. um, yeah. you know, so there's obviously all sorts of other things. Like service providers, i found, is another big one. Like the right service providers, whether it be accounting, legal, yep. um, you know, even software that the company uses. All that sort of stuff is important. Do you I mean, sort of...
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, so we're pretty hands on. Um, yeah. So we're uh, sort of, we, we have a small portfolio of businesses that we're pretty hands on. So we'll, you know, go to the level of detail of, you know, not just working with founders but working with key executives in the business. So, you know, one of our fact our first portfolio business in this company has a has uh, just opened in Queensland. They've got a a a Queensland state manager who's not managed a big team before. Yeah. Um so I, I I mentor him. I catch up with him, you know, once every three or four weeks just to run through what's happening, how things are going and and help him in terms of his personal journey as as a, a manager and a leader yeah. in a
0: business. Um, so so what, one, other,
1: one other thing, as a founder, right, one
0: of the things that you don't like to do is deliver your investors bad news, yes. right? And given you've got six companies, two and a half years, I'm guaranteed at some stage investment, you know, some of the portfolio, you get bad news or not pleasant, however you want to call it, news that you weren't expecting. How do you, and this is more for helping, uh, I suppose, different founders, how do you digest that and then how do you proactively work with founders to either fix or...
1: Sure. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. There is no such s- s- thing as a business that, that doesn't have problems. All businesses have problems. Even, mm-hmm. even the successful ones have problems. And, um, so, so how do we deal with this? First of all, we're really transparent. So if something yeah. goes wrong, we'll tell our investors. Yeah. Now, in this particular fund, we're only fairly new, so mm-hmm. the longest investment we've had for two years. Yeah. And, we've, and we haven't really had anything go wrong yet. Uh, but something will go Not wrong. That Not that wood. Not that wood. So something will go wrong. It just hasn't yet.
0: But you're uh, obviously, here's the thing you're obviously a fairly pragmatic person and you've yep. seen a lot of different things in your career. I just, I think founders don't realise how
1: comfortable investors are with bad news. They're, they're oh, absolutely. And I stress if you're taking on investors, financial investors in your business, the best thing you can do is be open and transparent about problems because investors have a, a vested interest in the success of the business yeah. and you know it, most investors have an element of, of business experience that's why they're investing in businesses because mm. they can add value and if they don't know that you've got a problem they can't help you fix it um, so we are you know absolutely black and white with our which also they've dealt with their own share fair share of issues in absolutely. that time as well absolutely um you know, so, you know, you look at those, those sort of, you know, things that, that happen. I mean, one of our, uh, one of our portfolio companies, um, you know, has had the tax office doing an audit on them, um, you know, and, and, you know, for someone who's never gone through that process, where the tax office turns up on your doorstep, that can be a bit intimidating. And, you know, first thing they did was ring me, and I'm like, hey, it's okay. Don't stress about this. Um, we've, we've done all the right things. Um, have a conversation with them. Get the accountant um, on the phone run through whatever it is they want to know about and and one of two things will happen they'll either find something we've done wrong which we're pretty sure we haven't uh or two they won't and if they if they won't then we'll go away and and yeah. they'll go away and then that's exactly what happened they okay. literally it was a very very quick you know process and you know but for someone you know as we've talked about being a founder can be lonely yeah and all of a sudden the tax office is on your doorstep uh you know and all the pl- employees are sitting around going well who are these tax people and you know, it, it can be quite intimidating. But yeah. that happens all the time. And, and if you haven't been through it, and I've been through that in businesses that I've run, um, you know, it's the, the great thing we've got here in Australia is we've got, while we've got a lot of red tape and bureaucracy around, around business, what we also have are, are, are relatively fair processes in dealing with it. And so if you yeah. genuinely, you know, strive to do the right thing, Sometimes even if you have made a mistake but you strive to do the right thing, you'll you, you almost always get um, you know, a, a reasonable hearing from whoever it is, whichever you know, department that is yeah. that's checking up on you. And just as a, like a sort of final two things I want to go through, is what,
0: what would be your key advice that you'd provide to a founders as far as in their, you know, so they're going through the growth phase, so everything's exciting, they're thinking about raising
1: money, what would be some of the advice that you'd provide to them? um so the advice i would provide was start speaking to investors before you need the money what um, time frame well that sort of depends um uh, so it depends on the size of of, of your business and, yep. and uh, i mean the reality is, is that raising capital is a big distraction to the business yes um so you know and and for investors a lot of investors uh, you know a lot of the decision as to whether they invest in a business comes down to trust because ultimately it is a, a very, it's a very risky thing, and and the better you know a founder, um, even if it's through casual coffee catch ups and things like that, the more likely you are to invest in their business because you you've got a sense of hey they're a reasonable person. Like the reality is, a founder running a business can rip their investors off, mm. you know, very very easily, particularly in a private business, a small private business yeah. where accounts aren't audited and those sorts of things. That's that's the reality. So there needs to be a level of trust there. So that, so one of the things I would do is sort of say. Um, you know, speak to to potential investors early, um, not necessarily about on investing in business, but asking them about things. So, if you know that there's a particular investor that invests in businesses that are like yours, you know, catch up with them, you know, for a coffee, maybe to ask them about, you know, well, how do I go about finding investors? What do you look for? What's yeah. important when you invest? Who else should I be talking to? Um, you know, can you even can help me leave that me yeah. you a- Absolutely, and and the interesting thing I've learned over time is that. Most people um, that that have been successful in business are very open to helping other people that are yeah. on the same journey. Uh, you know, and I, as I mentioned earlier, I've spoken to truckloads of people. I, I've, I've run probably 80% of all venture capital investors in Australia and probably 30% of all private equity investors in Australia to have a conversation with them about, well, you know, what have you learned? How do you go about doing this? How does your investment committee work? How do your risk reports work? How do you report to investors? Asking all those questions mm-hmm. and... Sometimes it takes multiple telephone calls and sometimes people do go, don't get back to you. But when you get them on the phone, they'll almost always have a chat for half an hour, catch up for a coffee. It's very rare where someone is actually rude and says no. Yeah. Uh, and the same applies from our perspective. People ring us all the time wanting a bit of help with that or some advice on something else. And, and we're always happy to give it because I think there's very much a theory of the, you know, the, more, you, the more you give out, the more you get back type thing. And like, I just want to put a time frame around this. Where, would
0: it be... Know, three months that you'd start having that conversations beforehand. Or would
1: it be six months or? Sure, what would it be? I, think, um, I think I think to Yeah, yeah. Uh, the answer is it, it depends. You know, if you're if if you're uh, a business and you're raising a ten million dollar yeah. round of funding, it's the first time you've ever done it. Um, you know, and you're an early stage business. That's going to be pretty hard. Yeah. Um, if you're raising two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, that's going to be pretty easy, uh, depending on the metrics of your business, right? So, yeah. so it's a really hard question to answer. The way I would look at it though. Is, is understand that, that if you've got a business that's going to need rounds of capital in yeah. order to raise, then you should always be raising capital. And what I mean by that is you should always be having meetings, talking to people, making connections, building that network of people that can support your business financially you know, when, the, when the time comes to need that. So, really funny, so the principles for Chris that were sort of outlined
0: in education is number one, get ready, two, stay ready, number three, always be raising. Have <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that and And yeah. the fourth one is get to a fast, yes or no. now and and, and that's a really important one. Now no. a no doesn't and also the other thing I've seen is a no doesn't a no just means not can also mean not now, yeah. but often there could be milestone triggers a year, twelve, eighteen months, sorry, a year, eighteen, twenty four months down the track as well.
1: absolutely. I mean we've we've I mean some of our portfolio companies came to us two years ago, and we wow. said no, um. Wow you know um, Was there a case where you said
0: go back and do this and then they actually did it and you were surprised um, yeah well certainly
1: well, one of the things that, that bodes really well uh, so one of the things I talked about is a founder that is coachable yeah. is a founder you like to back Yeah. and so when someone comes to you and says you know, you know would you invest in us? and we say no because you haven't got this this and this and then they come back a year later and they say hey you suggested that I should do this this and this and I've now done it you know then, then you kind of you kind of almost tick that hey this guy's coachable you know, um, he or she has sort of taken on board what we said, gone and done it, done whatever it is needed, and, and has come back. And so all of a sudden that person, you know, is, is elevated in terms of that, that that checklist process of of what do you need when it comes to backing someone from an investment perspective.
0: Really interesting. Well, look, I, I think that's about all the sort of questions I have. Like I said, this has been such an insightful session, so I much appreciate your time with Funny enough, we actually meant to do this for about 30 minutes, which we had zero chance of having our discussion land within a 30 minute time frame. But Chris, really appreciate your time and appreciate the insight you provided. No worries, Steve. Happy to help. Source the latest deals, engage with new investors, and close your deals sooner with CRISP at CRISP.io.